Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I am Mark Ellis, joined, as always, by Jacqueline Coley. Jacqueline, there is some swindling going on on Tinder, and I want to talk about it. But unfortunately, that's not what we're here to discuss today. No, but I will say this. I have not watched the Tinder Swindler Netflix documentary, but I have watched the ID uh, episode on because ID uh, mm-hmm. Discovery Network is where all of the good docs happen before they go to Netflix and elsewhere. Oh, those really? guys are on the ground floor. Oh, ah, OK. Yeah. All right. So you, you might actually be ahead of me in some in some regard when it comes to these big documentaries that I just think I just discovered for everybody else. No, they're quick and dirty. Tiger King, quick and dirty. But you, you get the points. <laughs> you get the you get in there. The Netflix uh, ones are better. We are here to talk about something that I guess got in on the ground floor, if you wanted to, way back in 1965 with a novel by a young man named Herbert. And then that went on to be a 1984 film directed by none other than David Lynch. And again, in 2021, at least the first half directed by Denny Villeneuve. And that would be Dune, the epic about sand and spice. The 1984 David Lynch version is 43% rotten. On the tomato meter, 65% audience score, so at least it's fresh there. And the 2021 film, 83% certified fresh. And with the audience, it is all the way up to 90%. So we're going to be talking about all things Dune, both versions of the film we're going to be covering here today. And getting deep with the lore is going to be the host of the big hit show podcast and the upcoming book, Most Triumphant, a story of Keanu Reeves' filmography. Alex Papadamus is about to join us here. Jacqueline, this is so exciting because you came across Dune long before I did, but we talked about it. We were hyped when the movie was coming out. It got some Oscar nods, but also like there's no real way to give a synopsis of Dune without taking the amount of time that the movie takes to watch, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's space, it's sand, it's worms, and uh, spice. Yeah. spice, and yeah. uh, everything nice with Timothy Chalamet <laughs> and David Lynch. And That's why Kyle. you love it. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I love it. I, I will say that, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, it, you're you're also a big David Lynch head. Now, David Lynch, let, let's just clear the record right here, was never really in the running to direct Return of the Jedi because he didn't want to do it. But there was a meeting. George Lucas asked him if he would be interested in directing Return of the Jedi. Said no to that. Next year, Dune comes out. So we're going to be talking about the 84 Dune and Denny Villeneuve's first half of Dune that I just got to watch both these this week. And so a whole lot of excitement here. It's a story of destiny, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but as we shortchange the synopsis, we are going to remind you all that we are going to be talking spoilers plenty for both versions. And maybe we'll get into some novel spoilers, too, but nothing too deep there because reading is a lot harder than watching a movie. What is great is when we get to hear Tim Ryan, our expert review curation manager here at Rotten Tomatoes, tell us what the critics were saying at the time of the release of 84 and the release of last year's 2021 version of Dune. Tim, the floor is yours. Two minutes with Tim. Frank Herbert's Dune has often been described as an unfilmable book, but that hasn't dissuaded filmmakers from taking a crack at it. On today's podcast, we're discussing David Lynch's 1984 version, which critics largely found to be visually striking but narratively muddled, and Denny Villeneuve's 2021 version, which critics largely found to be visually striking and substantially more narratively coherent. The 1984 Dune is rotten at 43% with 65 reviews, and it has a 65% audience score. The 2021 Dune is certified fresh at 83% with 447 reviews, and it has a 90% audience score. And just for the record, Hodorowski's Dune, a documentary that chronicles Alejandro Hodorowski's frustratingly futile attempt to adapt Dune, is certified fresh at 98% with 121 reviews. So what did the critics have to say? Let's start with the 1984 version. In a rotten review, Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, several of the characters in Dune are psychic, which puts them in the unique position of being able to understand what goes on in the movie. However, in a fresh review, Kirk Ellis of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Dune is not the masterpiece its adherents have hoped for, but neither is it the disaster its detractors have claimed. Now for the 2021 version. In a fresh review, K. Austin Collins of Rolling Stone wrote, Villeneuve's Dune is a thick, loud, well-fed spectacle of a movie, towering over the people in it with a brooding sense of intention. Even in its quieter moments, even when wrestling through the Herbert novel's wide-ranging, learned, quirky mysticism, However, in a rotten review, Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal wrote, the plot machinery grinds to a halt as if clogged with sand and the well-earned welcome wears out. So that's the Dune cinematic universe. Let's kick it back to Jacqueline and Mark, who have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. Back to you, folks. <laughs> I mean... Sandworms factor prominently into this movie. And uh, there's another film that it reminded me of that features the sandworm. So, Jacqueline, we're going to talk about all this stuff and see whatever else, what other can of worms we can open with Alex Papadamus right on the other side of this. Let's get into movie talk. And as promised, now we are welcoming the star of the big hit show podcast and dropping April 28th. He is the author of Most Triumphant, a look back at all of the hits and some misses of Keanu Reeves's film career. The one, the only Alex Papadam is joining us here. Alex, hello, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm not the star of the big hit show, though. <laughs> I have to say it's the, the tape is the star of the big hit show and the That's story fair. is the star of the big hit show. I just have to say that because I'm not I, that implies like a level of singing and dancing that I'm not ready to do. <laughs> Like a Dean Martin kind of quality that like I would like to say that I possess, but I don't know. The star of our show, but you know, no, I am just the host. I'm just the conduit to the information. 
I'm sorry um, to correct you as our very, very beginning of our relationship. No, that's a, that's a very humble way to, uh, to come on our show, but we are thrilled to have you. And not just because I want to talk about both Dune movies and, and Jacqueline and I are coming at Dune from very different angles, just as far as when it entered our, our, our airspace, I guess I should say. So before I ask you if the tomato meter is right or wrong with either the 84 or the 2021 Dune, when did you first stumble across this Dune mythology? Was it the novel? Was it one of the films? It was, all right, so I was born in 1977. In 1984, I was, do the math, uh, seven years old. Um, so the thing about the 1984 Dune, which maybe people who experience it now for the first time don't really necessarily get about it, is that it went through the blockbuster pipe along with all of those other things. Everybody thought this was going to be another Star Wars. And so this was marketed to kids, to seven-year-olds like me. There was a toy line. Uh, from LJN, like the sort of Star Wars figures and everything. And there were, uh, the, so my first Dune experience was the Dune storybook. Shout out to uh, adapter Joan DeVinge. Uh, it's like a hardback book for kids, but it has the entire story of the movie and a lot of like stills from the movie. And they did this a lot. Like you would get this from your scholastic book order or whatever. And like everybody in your class would be spoiled on Return of the Jedi like months ahead of time because they didn't have their things kind of lined up and everything. So... That was how I learned about it. And I just assumed that this was meant for me as all things that were marketed in that way were meant for me. And then, of course, you watch this movie and it, it was traumatizing in kind of the best way. And it really stuck with me. And I think that was where all of that mythology just uh, of the, the guild navigators mutating and all of those things really made an impression on me. And then years later, I became a fan of it almost in a different way because I became a huge David Lynch fan in the interim. So in like 1992, one, whatever, watched it again a bunch of times as an obsessive Lynch head and saw everything that was going on with that movie that felt like David Lynch to me. And then I became a fan of it in a different way. So I kind of had those first two experiences and you could not have told me, I was very surprised to learn that it was a bomb the first time because I was like, this is an amazing uh, space epic that I, that I love as a, a seven, eight year old. Yeah, Jacqueline, when you're a little kid, you have no you have no concept of what a budget is. But Dune in '84 was the most expensive movie ever made with a forty million dollar budget, and then its box office would do twenty seven million dollars. And my childhood's flooding back to me too because I remember those picture books. I had the Return of the Jedi one, and then Jacqueline, you remember the sticker ones? I had a Willow sticker yes. book. I don't even know if I ever saw the movie Willow start to finish, but I knew it inside and out because of the sticker book. No, so I had the novelization of Willow because I used to read novelizations and obsessed with them. It was one of the like I was one of the few people who like legitimately got geeked when they heard that like people like Quentin they're like doing these novelizations because that's actually how I introduced to more movies than people realize because they used to always do that. They would do the book, they would do the movie, and then they would do a novelization. Another great novelization I read, the 19, I think 99 classic Can't Hardly Wait had a novelization. I read that one. Like, I literally have read some very deep cut uh, movie novelizations because that's a lot of the movies that I first loved were based on books. And that's actually where Dune came into my life when I was obsessing about Jane Austen and leading reading Little Women. The boys who had stumbled into the library alongside me, if they were not like getting the comic books or the graphic novels, they were holding copies of Dune. Yeah, the novel came out in 65. And so and, and so you had all this lore that was built into uh, this sort of the public consciousness. And I think that it's regarded as the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time. 
as well. And and so, Alex, the the public wants to know, needs this information. When you look at the tomato meter for Dune 1984, it's 43% Rotten. So let's start with that one. Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong with that score? I'm going to say that score is not surprising, but personally, I disagree with it. It is, uh, you know, if it's if it was just me, that score would be much higher. That was <laughs> yeah, so well, diplomatic. Yeah. Can I just the, say well, the that? audience is 65 <laughs> percent. And so I think the audience maybe favors this movie, maybe for some of those childhood reasons that you do. Why, why in your mind, I guess, is the 84 one a, a, a fresh movie? It, it sounds like. Is it just the, the nostalgia of it? Or when you go back and watch it, is, is the Lynchian elements that you've come to love in other movies? What, what stands out to you about that? 84 Dune. I think, I mean, and I actually feel this way about both of them. I feel this way about the 84 one and the 2021 one, that these are both very specific directorial signatures on uh, an attempt to make Dune into a blockbuster movie, right? So they're clearly, uh, they're, they're both trying to take this very sort of voluminous and confusing, like if you've read the original novel, like that is a dense book. Like it is, it is a heavy, dense book with a lot of story and a lot of backstory. And they're trying, both trying to turn this into something that feels like a fun, like popcorn space movie, like in the Star Wars vein, in some way, in some way or another, while kind of nodding to those kind of philosophical aspects of it that exist. I love how much, even though I think Lynch considers it a failure, I love how much he was able to put his stamp on this project, despite sort of what the intention was, which was to create like the next Star Wars, basically. Somebody hired, somebody wanted to create the next Star Wars out of Dune and they gave it to David Lynch, which made sense for a number of reasons at the time, which we could maybe talk about. But like, you know, the, he was there was a moment when he seemed to be pivoting towards like, a you know, a different career than he ended up with. And so I love how much it feels like David Lynch unleashed with this $40 million budget. Now, you can see why he doesn't like it and why he's unhappy with it and why he thinks it's the one movie where he kind of sold out. And they, there was a lot of stuff that was foisted on him uh, in the edit. You know, he turned in a three-hour movie. It's two hours. The, you know, it was rewritten in the editing room, all of that. I see all of those flaws, but the more I watch it, the more I see somebody who just, you can't, you know, you, you sort of, it's like David Lynch is like the ingredient that you put in the stew that sort of, it's like, it's going to taste like David Lynch. It's going to turn into a David Lynch stew no matter what. And so there's so much of his kind of spirit in there and so much of his invention that I have a real affection for it that I don't think is really about nostalgia. Cause I think when I was a kid, it kind of like just messed me up watching it. Like I was like, I don't know what this is. So I mean, maybe it's a nostalgia for like late adolescence for being like 14 instead of being eight. I mean, Jacqueline, I imagine for a kid watching this movie, it is like what like a what, like a sniff of spice to the skull. And you're just like, you know, like your whole world opens up. And the thing that I love, because I'm also with Alex here, I think that the tomato meter is way too low for the 84 Dune. And I watched this after I saw 2021's version. I really, really had fun with this movie because I didn't know if I was going to get something that felt very over the top, like cheesy, like a Flash Gordon or something that that did feel more authentic. And what I got was like a, an engaging sci fi story. It gets very uh, dull is the wrong word, but but it gets very slow at points. But the performances in this movie were great. And I loved as I'm watching the opening credits, I see. And it reminded me that I knew this information at some point. The music done by Toto and Brian Eno doing this, the, the prophecy score. I'm like, oh, you're speaking my language now. I'm in. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. See, so this is what's so crazy about Dune is I just so wonder what David Lynch's Dune could have been with the technology that is available now. Because the problem with that I have with Dune is the same problem that they had when they decided to make this. The technology of movie making at the time was not something that could in any way match the vision of what Frank put in the novel. And it's just silly. So I think I saw <laughs> Dune later. Not this late, but like later. It was definitely an encore watch. I definitely recall the like promos because if folks remember back in the day, if you watch linear premium television, they didn't have commercials. So the only thing they put in between there were these little mini commercials for the movies that were coming out on the platform. And I remember very distinctly watching the promo for Dune, which then means that I probably watched Dune because I also like still remember the promo for Heathers, which is where I watched that movie for the first time. So I know I watched it at that time <laughs> and I didn't care. I just remember lots of sand. And I remember, you know, Kyle MacLachlan, who I thought was kind of dreamy at the time. And he was. Oh, yeah. He's very dreamy at the time. Still is. Um, still is. And um, after Sex and the City, though, we don't like him as much. Um, <laughs> just so you know. He was very bad in that show in the sense of like we hated his character. Anyway, so I just I just didn't think it was great. And then when I revisited it previously, recently, before this new one was about to come out, I was just like, I can't. I can't with the bad CGI. I can't with like Sting's in a different movie. I like the movie that he's in, (laughs) but he's in a different movie. The uh, Harkness character, just some of the things that they did. It is a very Lynchian tale. I'm not going to pretend that that's true, but. There's just there's so many limitations on the storytelling and at times it's just laughable. And so all of the great things that it does do well are just like held down. And I think it's this what it is. It was a 40 million dollar movie. And so it has these big movie sentiments, but it's in so many ways shot like the Toxic Avenger. And I just wish we would have just gotten the Toxic Avenger version of Dune, like just make it. Like, don't pretend it feels like a student movie. So just make the student movie version of Dune. Let it cheese. Let it camp. Give me the John Waters Dune. I would have enjoyed it more. Alex, do you agree with that? That maybe you just lean into what it was of the time and and don't try to be something that was ahead of its time, which was where we could have gotten all this great CGI that we see in the 2021 version. But we just, you know, to quote Marty McFly, we just weren't ready for that yet. Right. The technology wasn't there. I want to say that I would love to see the John Waters do. And I don't want to say I don't want to be in any way disagreeing with that sentiment because I would, I'm, I'm in favor of giving John Waters most properties uh, oh. if he wants. You know, you know. Alex, I have a question for you real quick. Add this. 
ask me why the CGI in Sinbad and the Seven Seas is better than the CGI in Dune. Tell me why. And that was claymation. The technology was there. Uh, why is it better? Is that... Yeah, like, uh, tell me why does it look like more oh, you're, believable? Oh, it's a rhetorical question. Yeah, you're like, like, how you is know, that possible? Yeah, it's like trying to do, it's maybe trying to do less. I mean, I will say that, like, I enjoy this because of the practical effects in some way. I Like, the you know, all of these, the kind of the monsters and the way that the sandworm is very clear. There's a guy's arm in there. You can just kind of, it just has that feeling about it. I mean, it, it is, you do feel like you can see the budget running out as things are happening, you know, that they're running through that $40 million and that maybe $40 million was not enough. And that, you know, at some point, uh, you know, this is part of this string of flops that bankrupts Dino De Laurentiis and maybe the cash, yes. is, the cash, cash flow problems are starting to happen. It's not solely this. It's also like Red Sonia. And yeah, time. yeah. Yeah, I guess I just appreciate that about it because it feels like this, It like all of it, it just feels like an expansion. It's like if Eraserhead had a $40 million budget and it just feels like what David Lynch would do with that. Um, and so that kind of, you know, I mean, maybe I'm just a stan. Maybe that's just, you know, that is the bottom line here that I'm like, he, you know, because I don't think, I don't even think that he meant to do this. I don't think he would agree with me. I think this is the one movie he doesn't, this is the one movie he doesn't like to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I've seen in interviews that, that, that David Lynch regrets how, how it came out because he did feel like it was made in the editing room without him and it was not the cut that he would have approved. He wanted a longer film too because we're he telling both He wanted his name parts. taken off of it. He yeah. wanted his name taken off of it. So. Yeah, well, he and, took and, his name off, yeah, the long version, the TV version, which he has a bunch of scenes just they wanted to make it 176 minutes so they just stuck a bunch of stuff back in there apparently it doesn't really exist in any form that he'd be happy with like they've offered him the chance to do a director's cut on it and he's like nah I don't want to I don't want to revisit it because I guess he didn't get to shoot it the way that he wanted to and they had to shoot all this extra stuff and like all that apparently all the narration the parts where it's like you know you just sort of there's a shot a static shot of somebody's face and then they're like thinking in their head you know like Duke Leto never has a second cup of coffee at home that's all like uh, something that he you know <laughs> was was forced to do right because they need to get all this exposition in there because they're terrified that it won't make sense to people that's the main problem with it is that it's like larded with all of this information up front that they want you to get they want you to know everything going in they don't want you to be confused and i think part of the Villeneuve uh, movie that's better is that like they you know uh, directors are able to trust audiences a little more and also they're expecting people to have read about it ahead of time so they're not going to be walking in completely lost and so well, the first 40 minutes of Dune is like teaching you how to watch Dune in the Lynch version and it's very it's you know very here's here's what all these factions are about and you know it's a lot of uh, information thrown at you but see as an audience member I am like, like okay I'm a reasonably intelligent human like out on the street and I got some book smarts. I'm a moron sometimes when it comes to watching movies, especially getting inundated with all this mythology. So I it was like playing catch up watching because I saw the 2021 version first. And so by the time I came to David Lynch's Dune, I, I felt pretty versed and I felt like, oh, I can keep up with this and I will defend to my dying breath, how cool the armor looks in the 84 one. When, when the, during the combat scenes, that look, it looked cool to me, especially in 1984. I imagine that's like something that I would immediately run out of the theater and me they, and my brother would be fighting each other with pillows. They Sockham robots, dude. Oh, they come on. Worse. They looked worse. <laughs> <laughs> What's the scene for you, Alex, <laughs> that you say, this 1984, like, like this is why I, I can still enjoy and revisit this. Can you boil it down to, to a scene that really stands out to you from that first movie? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, but I will give it to the first big sort of set piece scene where the uh, the guild navigator, which is this 
uh, it, I guess, used to be a guy and has morphed into a giant worm who floats in a tank of space drugs all the time. And that gives uh, him the power to fold space and sort of move, uh, you know, uh, armadas of spaceships from one side of the galaxy to the other. And uh, one of these creatures shows up with his entourage to have an audience and kind of give the emperor of the galaxy a hard time. And it sort of pulls into this uh, big sort of throne room in what looks like a giant train. It's a very Lynchian sort of object. It looks like the teapot from Twin Peaks, The Return. It looks like a train car with like <laughs> steam coming out of it. It's just like, it's it's one of those things. This is what I'm talking about, that like he manages to get like the types of things that he just loves to shoot for whatever reason, for whatever kind of like unexplained David Lynch aesthetic preference. And then it opens up and it's this like really gnarly sort of puppet thing with a kind of like, I'm just going to say it's kind of a vaginal mouth that opens and breathes and talks, you know, and it's a very kind of weird David Lynch dream image. It looks like the, you know, if you, if you know Eraserhead, it kind of looks like the baby from Eraserhead. Like he's got all of these, he has kinks and he keeps hitting them in movie after movie. And there's a lot of exposition in this movie. There's a lot of, in this piece of the movie, there's a lot of things that aren't explained, but you do get the sense of this vast galaxy and that with a lot of weird stuff going on that you are not necessarily let in on. And I am enraptured every time when it's like the guy's like, there are many machines on X. And I'm like, I don't know what X is. I don't know why that's significant. But like the like Jose Ferrer seems very like upset about this. Like he's like, oh, really? Like, yeah, it's yeah. We have just folded space from X. Yes. How was your journey? Many machines on X. New machines. Oh? Yes. Better than those on bridges. You are transparent. I see many things. I see plans within plans. I see two great houses. House Atreides. House Arconan Fugi. As much as this movie is probably sort of, you know, kept from being as great as it is by its need to explain everything and by its need to kind of lead the audience by the hand, it's also so confusing. And that feeling of being confused, like, takes me back to being a kid, I guess, in some ways. And I love that about it. But it's just, it's so ominous and there's so much (laughs) seriousness. But then there's also, like, all of the weird production design that, like, his sort of uh, which the, like the the Denis version has a little bit too with the guy with the microphones, you know, those guys talking to the, you know, because that's what I like about the Denis one too is I think it takes in the, the Lynch one as part of the mythology a little bit. Like it makes it part of the the Lynch mythology. But yeah, that there's all those like strange uh, characters who show up and, you know, it's just, a, it's amazing. And like, you know, I'd be hard pressed to really even remind, I, I have to think about what he's actually saying. Um, well, so he wants to kill. They want. He they wants him to kill uh, Kyle McLaughlin. That's like the, basically the, the you know gist of the scene. But there's so much pageantry around it. So and that's like very early in the film. Um, but there's a lot of things like Sting holding a hairless cat. Like, come on, a lot of good animals in this movie. A lot of good animals. I, listen, I'm we, not we mad open, about Sting. We get, I'm we just get a saying. train of bulldogs. We get we we get uh, yeah. the, the House of Trades pug. And then we get a hairless cat. And so we do get a little bit of everything. Now, those aren't even, I mean, those are some of my favorite parts of the movie, Jacqueline. But it's also just fun having eyes on this and the 2021 Denny Villeneuve version, which will bring in now somewhat, it's 83% certified fresh on the tomato meter. So markedly 
you know, uh, improvement from at least how critics felt about the original and even higher with the audience score. It's a 90% audience score. So if you're a fan of Dune, whether it was 84 or it was the novel, it seems like you were pretty pleased with this new version. And that was one of the delights of going back to 84 for me is seeing like the character of Gurney, for instance, you get to see Josh Brolin, but then I saw Patrick Stewart as him. And it is like, oh, this is some really, there's some good casting matchups here. Now, Jacqueline, if I give you the character of Paul and I say, okay, it's Kyle MacLachlan versus your boy, Timothy Chalamet, I think I know which way you're leaning, but it's, it's a hard decision for you, I'm willing to bet. Actually, okay, this is the problem. Kyle MacLachlan is too old to play Paul Atreides, and Timothy Chalamet is too dainty. <laughs> they kind of make a joke about it, like where um, yeah, Momoa of all people yeah, just kind of like, gives him a quick out? senior no. freshman bully moment. Oh my god, it was so bad. But I will say, of the two. Like, it's really what's interesting is Timothy Chalamet very much is doing what Leonardo DiCaprio did. Is Leonardo DiCaprio looked boyish until he just didn't. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio literally looked 22 until he was, like, 35, and then he looked like a normal adult. I think Timothy's going to be the exact same thing. He's going to look very, 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 very boyish until he looks like a man. And, like, I need him right before that shift. I need, like, Leo in The Departed to be that version. And this is not that that yet for, for Timmy, but he, I will still pick Timmy. Yeah, I was reminded of Wart, the animated character from Disney's Sword in the Stone <laughs> when I was watching Timothy Chalamet because I appreciated that about him, though, that he is just so dainty. He's just so thin and, and young looking. And that this is, I mean, this whole movie is, is basically, it boils down to that this kid doesn't feel like he's ready for the responsibilities, but at some point, life is just going to saddle you with it and you have to suck it up and sort of live out your destiny, even if you don't feel prepared for it, which us watching it, we're like, this kid can't take on the fate of the entire universe. But that's sort of the, the point, isn't it? Is that you don't feel ready for this and you just have to suck it up and just do it. So for me, I, I appreciated what, what Denny started and I'm looking forward to what he finishes sooner rather than later. Alex, are you with the tomato meter score for the 2021 Dune? Is Rotten Tomatoes wrong or right with that 83%? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think some of the reception of the 2021 one is born out of this belief that the 1984 one needs to be remedied somehow by, you know, the, the doing it right. You know, which is a very which is a very kind of like modern sort of superhero movie way of thinking about things where it's like, oh, this one in the past was a little corny and there were some things wrong with it. So we're going to do we're going to do it right. And there's a certain like aesthetic criteria that sort of constitutes doing it right. And part of it is just doing it real big and like letting it you know, kind of breathe in a way that like it does make it, uh, you know, m more in the spirit of the novel, feel more epic, you know, that like he only does the first half of the book and just kind of cuts it off like in a crazy way so that the big sort of like climactic battle in the first one is a knife fight, which is kind of great. I sort of love that about it. And it like hits, it, it's, you know, it looks amazing. It's like, I really feel like that one is probably, the 2021 is probably the best case scenario for a big modern blockbuster adaptation of this book that just recedes further and further into the past and like really kind of has to be brought forward in a lot of ways creatively. So I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely that I don't buy that there was something wrong with the 84 one. And that part of, you know, I think that's a lot of like what people are excited about. It's like, oh, finally, somebody like really did it. But like, I feel like David Lynch really did it too. In 
a David Lynch way, which again, David Lynch would tell me that I'm wrong you know, loudly and, and then not say anything else. <laughs> yeah, Jack, but part of this, though, is, is I, I just think that maybe critics in 84, and I'm not trying to speak for them, might have looked at this movie and said, OK, so the Eraserhead guy is now doing this beloved sci-fi novel. I don't know that he got the credibility as a director that Denny Villeneuve got in 2021 when Dune is coming out because folks love this guy's movies already. And he's just seen as, as this modern day auteur who, whenever he's got a property, come, regardless of what the movie's about, people want to go see it because good chance is going to be critically acclaimed in Oscar sort of conversations. Those are worlds you walk in. Is that your feeling on 2021's Dune? Is that it lived up to the hype of a Denny Villeneuve director? Um, yes, it definitely lives up to the hype, but I do think that there's a little bit of correcting the record with David Lynch because what's interesting and what, you know, Alex sort of remind me of, he was one of the first directors to sort of feel the brunt of an indie director going and doing a big budget thing and the somewhat betrayal. But what's interesting is it wasn't like Chloe Zhao doing The Eternals. David Lynch doing Dune was like, Gaspar Noe doing uh, um, Doctor Strange. Like, it's very like, yeah, you know, and honestly, the, the closer thing to it is James Gunn doing Guardians of the Galaxy. James Gunn is a trauma, like, mm-hmm. very uh, exploitation style director. And so him doing a, like, family-esque friendly comedy movie uh, about superheroes is really a twist. And that's what Lynch did. And I think people thought it was going to be like that. And I think if Dune could have had the technology to support what it was, it would have maybe more been akin to that. And since these books have proliferations that just get weirder and weirder as they go along, the idea that he could have continued that on like a three book arc is like, you know, whatever. Yeah, Denny got the benefit of the doubt, but Denny also did Blade Runner 2049, which wasn't a, a commercial hit, but it definitely was a critical one. And he still, he's that director. He was always like doing smart stuff. You think of something like Sicario. Denny, it wasn't that big of a jump. It's like Scorsese doing gangster flicks and then doing something more serious. It's like, yeah, you did start here, but you always had those sentiments. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you could even look at Blade Runner 2049 as by far the most expensive demo reel ever made. Because if you see that movie, then you say, this is the guy that I want adapting Dune and the fact that he's doing it in two parts. So, Alice, I'll go back to you for the 2021 version. What's the scene in that film that really stands out to you that says this is why this movie is where it is in in my heart and also on the tomato meter? Uh, Sardaukar planet, baby. (laughs) All day. Um, that when they go to the sort of, so there's this army, right? That in the, and they show up in the Lynch version and there's a lot of things in the Lynch version. They're just like, he just kind of is like, oh yeah, there's, they're here. Like they don't really get big. A lot of people don't get big entrances and a lot of characters don't get huge entrances. And like, for instance, like the Duncan character, like that Lynch is like, I don't know who this guy is or why he's here. He shows up, <laughs> he's there. I don't, I forget what even sort you know, I, I, what even happens to him. You know, it's not like the Momoa sort of like the big sort of uh, rollout that, you know, that he gets. So the Sardaukar is like this army of uh, mercenaries. And in the Denis version, you get to see where they come from. And there's a sort of there's a whole culture on their planet. Uh, you know, there's the there's a guy kind of like exhorting them to, I guess, you know, battle more e- effectively in. And he's got kind of throat singing. You know, he's doing that thing where you hit two pitches at once with your voice. He's got a whole microphone situation. And that was an example of something that that's not in the uh 
the the Lynch version, and it was like really amazing to see that. Atreides' legions are the finest in the Imperium, trained by Gurney Halleck, Duncan Idaho. Saduka, Just so, three battalions has agreed. I think in general, just just the scope of the Denis one and like, you know, the giants, the spaceships that are like the size of a moon kind of coming down. Like he really, it's it's very clear that unlike Lynch, who uh, there's a rumor that he never read the book Lynch and that he just kind of got the script and sort of was into it and said, sure, and then worked on it with some writers, but that he never actually read Herbert. Like Denis is obviously a fan of this, obviously wants to go the distance and make all of these crazy books, which I would love to just talk about for a second in the context of these movies, if we can, like where this is, franchise is theoretically going if you've read the novels. But so, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's it, it's it's that moment for me. It's it's seeing things that were never uh, dramatized before, um, you know, the, the, like the, and that's that's what's what's most exciting. And I like when he uh, when uh, Paul has his little spice trip outside of the. Uh, the carryall in the sort of the big, uh, you know, the big, the first sandworm sequence when he kind of uh, goes on his, you know, uh, they, they make more of that in the Denis version. It happens very quickly for McLaughlin. He's like, oh, spice, like, you know, but this is it, like he, he got Timothy got, definitely gets like the contact high and sort of has the visions and everything. I like how. Yeah, you're I, I, I'll, I'll take that ball and run with it, because that was clearly an example of everyone by 2021 knowing what exactly happens at Joshua Tree and needing <laughs> a little bit more of a feel for, whoa, this is like, I, I mean, <laughs> Let's be, dude is tripping balls outside and there's a sandworm coming, which is again, Beetlejuice fan that I am. As soon as I heard sandworm, I'm like, oh, I'm totally in on this movie. But the way that the sandworms look where you get to see the cloud and then you just get to see just this massive beast that lives below the surface. That first scene where we have to rescue everyone and then it, it, Gurney has to run out and, and grab Paul and get him back. I also love, 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 Jacqueline, the ships. I love like the butterfly helicopter he thinks. Those were so cool looking. Absolutely. I, I will say this, man. I, I don't want to beat up on it, but looking at Denny's version, I it's not only is it grand, not only is it lush, but it is like the opposite of that Michael Bay movie where there's still the little square of green screen that you can literally see in the final cut of the movie. <laughs> like this is the opposite of Cats. I really do feel every talon of that huge sandworm was like meticulously debated and thought about and visualized. And, and it, the last movie I felt that level of care and detail for was Mad Max Fury Road which was another movie like this new version of Denny that was, you know, a, a, a big hit that definitely incited audiences and they all loved it. But more importantly, it was also like valued by the Academy Awards as the definition of a, exceptional motion picture cinema, which I think is kind of cool when you think about that this, you know, sci-fi epic can kind of have that stage. And for anyone who's pissed off about Spider-Man, let me just remind you... <laughs> The Sandworm movie made it. Or is it just only that version of populist movie that you think is worthy? I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm in my feelings right now about this whole Spider-Man thing. Is if Joker, Black Panther, and all this other stuff didn't just happen. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, welcome to the land of most of us, 
superhero fans. Tip our cap to the sandworm. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is just the first part of this, and so Alex, kind of going back to what you were saying before about where this is going, at least according to the novels. What are you most excited about, or maybe apprehensive about, going into when we do get to experience the next chapter in Dennyville News, Dune? I mean. Look, if you know these novels, or if you don't, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it without spoiling too much. They cover there's six books that Herbert wrote, and they cover tens of thousands of years of history because that's what this story in the real sort of like when you st- take a step back, that's what it turns out to be. It turns out to be about this like millennia long eugenics project because basically certain people in this story have figured out that there is only one path. Uh, that leads to uh, every other path leads to humanity's extinction. There's only one way for like humans to survive into the tens of thousands of years into the future. And so imagine basically if you have that knowledge and you're the emperor of the galaxy, you rule the entire galaxy and you have to let stuff happen and you might have to sort of commit a little genocide here and there because ultimately it's going to lead to people still being around. And so there's all of these like, you know, really bleak and you know fascinating and horrible you know decisions that these characters are going to have to make but like thinking about these actors and the sort of the journey that they are going to go on that like the Timothy's arc and then like who's actually going to be in the sixth one that takes place millions and millions of years after the first <laughs> one like you could not guess that from watching the first movie and I kind of just don't I want to talk about it but I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to ruin it for people I mean I think they should stop I know where these stories go later. It just gets weirder. Like, I really think they should end in the first one before we get too far along until people are fusing. I want Leto the second, man. I want that in a movie so much. I just want to see that happen. And that's, yeah, I do. I do. I really, because that just, it gives me the creeps in the best way. It takes me, this is what I'm talking about, like being sort of, like going back to being sort of disturbed by this movie and having that be that's a deeper mark somehow if something can sort of weird you out at an age. Like, it didn't give me nightmares, but I thought about it a lot. It should have. I mean, yeah. And then, like, you know, I I finally read these novels. Like, I was way too young to read those books, and I tried, and it was just, I don't, this is, it might as well be in Latin. But, like, I remember reading those novels in, like, in my 30s and just being like, oh, this is the most incredible story. And where it goes from this initial sort of Paul Atreides kind of space opera thing to you know, this wild psychedelic odyssey across the galaxy. I love the idea that they're going to keep giving Denis this like hundreds of millions of dollars potentially to do this as long as these people go. Like, I've, you know, that's that's the thing. It's like, I think I feel about this the way that like Marvel people feel about, oh, I can't wait to see this story be told on screen as it was meant to be. Like, I can't wait to see them like whatever, do the, the executioner song or something in the X-Men movies. Like, that's how I feel about this, that I want, I actually want the fan service of of these things being brought to life because I actually feel like they have the, you know, like we've been talking about at the beginning is they now have the capability to do it at the scale that will make it feel like it felt in the books. But also these will be the weirdest blockbusters. I'm so psyched for that. I'm so psyched for there to that be popcorn movies where a guy merges with sand trout and is like, look at me. I have, I'm a worm with arms. <laughs> like, it, it's just so, like, it doesn't. It, he it, said it, it, ladies and gentlemen. He said it. Yeah. I'm not going to say who, I mean, who, it doesn't matter. It's, but, it, you know. It's I'm, been out since gonna, the 60s. If they really are going to come for you for a spoiler, 
Let's get. I've been I've been come for 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 weirder (laughs) things, but like, look, that's what uh, that's what I'm really stoked about with this. That was why I was really, you know, I'm rarely like a like a you know a cheerleader for a movie's success. Like, I don't care because I obviously I love the 1984 Dune. So clearly, like, I don't care about like you know box office and that does not factor in for me. But I really was happy that this movie did well because it means that potentially we're going to get these down the road. And I don't know if Denis is going to spend the rest of his life making Dune films. It might be somebody else. We might be in some kind of like a Roger Moore version of Dune by the time we get to the Sandworm <laughs> merger stuff. But like, God bless it. I just really, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked that it could potentially happen. Do we think that Dune can continue to be as successful as this first Denny film was? Because the movie made just under $400 million worldwide. And as great as the critical and audience perception was, I'm just not sure that you have a massive audience that might want to come back and revisit this time after time after time. I hope I'm wrong because I don't want everything to just feel like a Spider-Man, you know, now we're opening up multiverses and that kind of stuff. I would love for this trend to continue. But Jacqueline, you know people in high places. Is this something that can continue to have the legs that the first one did? Um, yes, yes. It can. It does. There are incredible moments to my point. I'm I'm just saying it does get more outlandish. I would look at it more like a later seasons of True Blood type situations. Like you may need to make some adjustments for sanity <laughs> sakes. You know what I mean? Um, but there's enough maybe connective tissue. I just I think there's things you're going to have to change. I do for believability like I can't, you can't make it a worm with arms. Like you just can't, you know what I mean? But there's maybe ways to make it seem like he's fused with the worm, you know, like some, you know, the earlier parts of Jeff Goldblum as the fly, making him look a little bit like oh, that. Oh, I don't hate that. Okay. You know? I could go you, with you that. You get into those later parts of the fly, people are not going to be down for it. Yeah. We'll when it was where... Timothy Chalamet to begin with, yeah. <laughs> the teenage girls are not going to be okay with this. They found a cool way to do Baron Harkonnen too, though. I mean, the the uh, like a sort of a more stylized way. Like in the Lynch version, he's just a fat guy covered in pustules, like on wires, uh, floating yeah. around the room. It's it's gross and it's grotesque and horrifying. And he's like a yeah. nightmare creature who would scare you as a kid. But the uh, Stellan Skarsgård is much more. It's like a sleek kind of like he's rising out of the water. You don't see his full size necessarily. Like you don't. You know, it's, he's he's much more of a like a, an ominous kind of scary figure. There's a cool way. I mean, Denny is like a stylish director. He'll find a way to do the worm with arms that gets maybe not you, Jacqueline, but like some people will buy in on the worm with arms. Like, I feel like that's going to I believe that that's going to happen. Oh, yeah. You're talking to one of them right now. I'm, I'm fully in on the worm with arms. You, you, now I'll be disappointed if I don't get a movie that features a worm with arms. Let's do some some comparisons uh, here, too, because, I mean, again, this is what I do. I like making art competitive. If if I give you one version of Dune and you have to take just the 1984 or the 2021, Alex, I'll start with you. Which one do you take and do you keep for all time? The 1984 version gave us a plastic action figure of Sting holding a hairless cat in a terrarium. <laughs> and I kind of have to give it to 84 based on that and many yeah. other sentimental reasons. But that is spoken with, you know, no hate at all for the uh the 2021, which is it, it's a, a good tiebreaker is staying in a hairless cat action figure. Plus, I would take a look. Hans Zimmer is a is the maestro of maestros. 
I'm taking Toto and Brian Eno over Hans Zimmer. Jack, what, am I crazy here? Yes. What have we all been on? <laughs> Listen, okay. I will say this Spice. is the choice. This is the choice. The choice is between a complete subpar movie or an epic, amazing movie that finishes in the middle of itself. Because <laughs> it's like I, we didn't even talk about this, but the problem I have with Diddy Vinny's Dune is that it is a song that finishes in the middle of it. Like it is not a complete movie. It is literally in the middle of the story. This is not Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings were chapters with starts and finishes, rising actions and falling actions. And then you preview to the next chapter. But this is not that. This is just in the middle of the song. Turn around, look at Zendaya. Fade to black. This is yep. not a movie. It's not a movie. Yep. It is an episode. It is an epic episode, but it is an episode. It is not a movie. And it's not even an episode. I can't even call it an episode. It's literally like a midi series that, that, that doesn't just end like correctly. It does not end correctly. But I would rather take an uncompleted song that was played well than listening to that Tammany Hall recital that we got over here. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I, Alex, I'll go back to you for the final word on Dune uh, because I do want to talk to you a little bit about the big hit show real quick. But if you were just to encapsulate your your love of Dune and, and let's stick with the 2021 version here. What is it about this that you're just so excited that the world finally gets to see um, you know, a lot of the story points that you have known for so long being a fan as long as you have been? I just think it is a completely different type of story, even though it's about a young man with a very special destiny, which is the plot of Star Wars, the plot of Harry Potter. It's a plot, you know, it, it's it's one of the master plots. Everything that goes on around that in terms of the politics and religion and ecology stuff that comes out of the novel and changes the story uh, is something that we haven't really gotten in one of these movies. You know, Star Wars comes out in 77. It's very much indebted to the novel. So a lot of those things, like, you know, make their way into the culture via Star Wars. But there is stuff in the Herbert version that, even if it's not, even if it's only sort of touched on, uh, just makes it a different kind of story and makes it basically, you know, it's a story about it's it's T.E. Lawrence. It's a story about somebody who goes into the, you know, goes into the desert and then leads an uprising against, you know, his own people in a way. It's a really fascinating, you know, it has all of these crazy political parallels. And I'm really interested to see like where that goes. And I think that's, you know, that's why I'm I'm most excited. And I'm most excited to see just how someone attempts to pull off the really weird, disturbing, hard sci-fi stuff. Because I think what both of these movies have in common, 84 and 21, and what I like about both of them is that a real sort of future world, an authentic sci-fi world would be kind of like a horror movie world to us. We would be weirded out. There would be stuff about it that would be just gross and sort of like we would be uncomfortable with like what is required of us. You just think about even the in both movies, the suits where you just pee all day and it recycles your urine and yep. everything else. And then you you drink that. It's a very basic sort of like gross, horrifying thing that's like totally normal in in their world. And I think that's what's, you know, that's what's great about it is that it's it's an authentically and in some cases disturbingly built out fantasy world that is not like our own and does not have the rules of our own and does not have the ethics of our own necessarily because it becomes, like I said, it becomes about eugenics on a multi-millennial scale, which is a very weird thing to talk about. And it's an extremely weird thing to think about who the heroes or the movies are going to be and what choices they're going to be making and like how that's how that's going to play out 
in a big like blockbuster movie with like Jason Momoa waving swords around in it. Like, I want to know. I want to feel that. And like, I don't know what that's going to be like. And that's very exciting to me because I feel like a lot of these, you know, a lot of these huge movies are very much about like, oh, they did the thing, like the thing that I knew about from before. They finally put it on screen in a way that looks like the thing that I read, the comic book or whatever it is. And like, you know, I don't know. In the simplest terms, it, th these humans are very different than us. And if you need proof of that, it's that they got to the level of inventing spaceships, but they never invented TV. They just skipped right over having a, having TV and watching something like the Super Bowl. But now we just get right to these cool butterfly yeah. helicopters that it can just it, it dive bomb and lift up and avoid sandworms. And it's just it, it's just a fascinating fascinating thing to look at where we could have gone as a people versus where we are here well, on they, Earth. Yeah, we got there apparently. It's like this is a world where we got to artificial intelligence and then we banned it, right? Like it's sort of yeah. like, I think that's basically what's supposed to have happened. So there's no, that's the other thing that's great about Dune is that there's no robots and there's no computers. But they, it's a little like Battlestar Galactica where they can't, they have, they have to like call on the like old timey phone when they're in, you know, the new Battlestar Galactica on the ships and stuff. Like there's no, you know, there's no artificial intelligence. And so, yeah, they be, we, we got there, we invented the smart TV and then it got too smart. And 10,000 years later, this is where we are. Yeah. Gosh. Milking I'm a always, cat. I'm always so, uh, so happy to talk to people who have made such a, a successful career in podcasting. And, and one of the questions I always love asking is, for you, Alex, it's pretty on the nose because your show is the big hit show podcast. When did you know it was it was becoming this big hit? When did you know that you had something something special that you were doing? I have really I don't know. I mean, we've just literally like we are tomorrow. We are recording this and like uh, tomorrow's Wednesday and we are launching our second string of uh, five episodes. We just did this thing. Uh, we just did five episodes on the Twilight Saga. Yeah. And the next five <laughs> episodes are about Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. And so that's, nice. I mean, right there, that's the thing that makes me really happy about this show is that I think that we have created something where, like, we can do a lot of different kinds of stories. And twi the Twilight so season is, like, nothing like the Kendrick season in so many ways in terms of it's still me hosting it, but, like, the way that it's structured and the way that it makes its arguments is completely different. And, like, you know, obviously, like, all of the, you know, all of the voices are different and, like, all these different people. So I'm really excited because... If you just take big hits as your purview, it limits you obviously to things that have succeeded in some way that have either been like commercially and or critically culturally successful. But you, there's so much within that uh, that you can do, and there's so many different places uh, that it that can go to. So I think that's like you know I don't know that that's an answer to your question. That's the thing that gets me most excited about uh, working on it and you know continuing to work on it. I just have one question on like just the forethought on these because it, it does seem like you like to your point that you're not bound to anything. Is there anything that's currently been requested that you haven't gotten to yet, but you feel like, okay, like this is the this is the next uh, area. Like if, the, if I don't, the fans are going to lose it a little bit. Is there one that is more requested than others? No, I'm waiting for some. I'm waiting for people to start requesting things. Honestly, I think like there's too much uh, trust in us. People aren't like, when are you going to do this? <laughs> like, I need to hear from 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 y'all from like from Jacqueline. Like, what would you like us to you know to dive into? Because there's I mean, you know, it's, me personally, Bill Hader yeah, you, and Beyonce. But that's just that's for this audience of one. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know what the masses want, but. Um, they might want Dune, and it, it seems like it, it seems like you certainly know how to talk about that at length. So, you know, it, it, could we see Dune having a future on the big hit show? Very true. Yeah. I would love to. I would love to cover that whole thing. There is a moment 
I will tell you that there is a very weird uh, Dune Twilight connection that came up while we were researching the uh, Twilight season. Everybody who's uh, paid attention to Twilight uh, and some of the, uh, you know, uh, aspects of Twilight that have become, uh, you know, sort of like now stand out as problematic knows that Stephanie Meyer borrowed a lot of things, a lot of uh, legends and things from the Quileute people of uh, Northwest Washington. Uh, They are the, you know, they are not really werewolves. She made them werewolves. Um, you know, all of those things. The only other author who ever sort of spent time with members of that tribe and then put the information into his books, Frank Herbert, creator of Dune. Um, Apparently, like, his sort of interest in ecology and interest in nature and all of those things, which is obviously a huge part of Dune and, you know, in some of his other novels as well, uh, he he had close relationships with two sort of older mentors who were associated with that tribe. They weren't necessarily of that tribe, but they sort of lived in that community over there in Washington. And so there's this amazing, there's a, there's one author who has traced it. There's a great lecture that you can see on YouTube where he talks about like all of the connections there, but I I talked myself out of it. I didn't have to be talked out of it, but like, I really wanted to put this in the show, but it would have been like a, as you can see, it's like a 15 minute digression. You're cutting this right now in your head. You're like, we're not going to use that part in Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. This has nothing to do with Rotten Tomatoes being wrong with the critical consensus, whatever. But like, that is one of those things. Like I, it is obviously an obsession for me and it dovetails with a lot of other obsessions for me like David Lynch. Um, and so it's, yeah, I would, I would love to do something like that, but it's also a really, I think much like twilight, it's a good story because there's a lot of different iterations that it goes through. And we haven't talked about Joe Dorowski's Dune at all, but like, that's a, you know, that's another crazy, what might've been kind of scenario for this franchise. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, you've, you've convinced me, I think in the course of this conversation that I should be doing a Dune podcast, you know, or, uh, you know, if I haven't already done one today. There you go. <laughs> Could happen. And the first time I've ever heard Twilight and Dune correlated in such an accurate manner. So, and to our fans, make sure you, uh, you, you hit up Alex and, and look, you can trust him. I trust him. But if you have a suggestion for the next, you know, episode of, uh, or the next series, I guess, of the big hit show, let him know. Before we let you go, Alex, we always like to get a streaming recommendation, whether it's a show, a movie that you're currently kind of obsessed with um, as a parting gift. So what is it out there right now that you're checking out that everybody else needs to get on board with? Uh, the last thing that I watched that I thought was great it was the Showtime documentary, The Individualist, which is about the street photographer, Ricky Powell. Um, he was a, uh, sort of a party photographer, nightlife photographer in New York in the eighties. He shot for paper magazine. He shot everybody as they were coming up, all these young stars. He's, there's a famous, like, have you ever seen the famous picture of like Lawrence Fishburne when he's like 25 or whatever, he's got that like denim jacket on. He's like looking over his shoulder. There's a couple of shots in this movie. They're like, Oh, I didn't know that like the one person took all these pictures. And he was like a sort of a downtown legend. Uh, becomes affiliated with a young rap group called the Beastie Boys around the time of License to Ill, becomes part of their entourage, tours with them, like lives among them, like lives the high life with the Beastie Boys and just like their, you know, crazy party antics and all of this. And then as the Beastie Boys sort of grow up and mature and maybe don't like aren't spraying beer on each other so much anymore, uh, Ricky is no longer part of that lifestyle in the same way. And he kind of has to figure out what to do with his life. And, you know, if you're me and you grew up listening to the Beastie Boys and hearing Ricky Powell's name in those songs and knowing who some of these folks were and like, you know, reading Grand Royal magazine and seeing him in there and everything, this is a fascinating and ultimately kind of sad look at 
you know, what that life is like, like what happens when you are picked up by the hurricane of a famous band and then kind of dropped back into your life and you have to figure out what to do next with it. And, you know, Ricky has some success and he has some, you know, some failures and some sadness, but it was, uh, you know, talking about like revisiting sort of things from your youth. It was like, oh, that, that this is what that guy's life was actually like that, you know, that name. So that's on, um, that's like a Showtime movie that any. any and what's it called on. again? It's called The Individualist. I'm about this. That's right. Well, he is a legend uh, behind uh, the, the Dune lore and the explanation of all the great stuff we got. You can catch most triumphant dropping April 20th. And of course, check out the big hit show wherever you digest your podcast. Alex Papadamus, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Please come back soon. Anytime at all. As long as we can keep talking about Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again to Alex Papadamus. Uh, make sure y'all check out the Big Hit Show podcast. And we don't have a mailbag today officially, but but we're starting to get a lot of y'all submissions for Hook, the Steven Spielberg movie, one of the very few Spielberg rotten movies. And so, for instance, Tyler Harper from Alberta, Canada, sent us a great audio recording of why Tyler thinks that we should do Hook on the show. So if you're like Tyler, you want us to talk about Hook, send us a video or an audio recording. Either one is fine. Same address that you would send your mail to where you think about the movie we talked about our reaction to it rt is wrong at rottentomatoes.com send us your audio and videos to why we need to cover hook because we're going to probably play tyler's in a future episode along with a lot of y'all submissions so that is rt is wrong at rottentomatoes.com about the highly controversial some love it some including the guy talking right now don't so much love hook uh, subscribe rate and review all the good things that your podcast platform of choice tells you to do, do that for us here at Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Thanks again to Alex, to my incredible co-host, Jacqueline Coley, our amazing producer, Lucy, Brian Perez, our expert engineer, Tim Ryan, our review curation manager, and everybody here at Rotten Tomatoes. I am merely Mark Ellis saying we will see you next time on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.